Fireside Chats, a podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss the work of Hillel Tickton, centering our discussion around his piece, Towards the Political Economy of the USSR. This is part two of a two-part conversation. I'm kind of curious because I haven't gotten a chance to read the essay that you and Donald read, but does does he ever touch upon China specifically or, or any other like Stalinist states? Yeah, I would yeah, also like yeah. to say that because so I think China wasn't because, just a copy and paste of the USSR. It kind of had its own unique aspects. Yeah, because I wonder how well like a sort of non-motor production sort of kind of analysis would work for say china or vietnam let's start a kickstarter to send in to live in china we'll get an apartment (laughs) honestly this is a that's a really good research program see like to try to take tickton's kind of like system and see how it works i mean i'm sure someone has done this yeah like the state theory of capitalism is usually applied also to china and that sort of thing and it's also i i don't know if anyone calls north korea state capitalism that would just be kind of weird some people some people just have a very broad and sort of vaguely synonymous with modernity way of talking about capitalism so anything that's like an an industrial class society of any kind you know yeah Yeah, there's so many people who are like oh the soviet union has to be capitalist there's like tractors and factories and assembly (laughs) lines and you 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 work in a factory where a manager watches you it's just it's the same as capitalism in the communist you lecture um that tickton did he talks about tony's cliff's sort of theory ish like it was basically just a name that he gave to the soviet union he even admitted that himself but he sort of talks about how like the soviet union was basically just one big factory in the global economy and that sort of thing and that i guess but it doesn't really describe how it works on the inside and the internal workings of the soviet union It's obscurantist. So, it just deals with it as a big collective capitalist. That's that's the Tony. That's the quiff I already meant. Is that it's basically like just a firm in the world market. But the thing is, all states are basically firms in the world market. It's just that states don't reproduce themselves like a capitalist firm does. States reproduce themselves by taxing production. And in the Soviet Union, the state did all of the production. It wasn't, it, it, it's just such a stupid argument. Under capitalism, there's a separation between the state, the impersonal political machinery of society, and the ruling class. They're, they're formally not, they're not the same thing, you know, as in like in a tributary mode of production, the state bureaucrats collect tribute from peasants and reproduce themselves and extract scruples that way. In capitalism, you know, 
there's no extra economic force you get to extract surplus. So the political and the economic are separate because you have an economic realm of markets and trading that isn't completely controlled by the state. When you nationalize everything, you no longer have that separation of the political and the economic, and you 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 enter up you change the you know the laws of motion of that society. Even if it's not in a you know a, a liberatory way, nationalization still you know blocks value and acts as a, a barrier to the penetration of value. It just doesn't you know inherently mean that the society you've created has overcome class divisions and social divisions um yeah i mean i guess correct me if i'm wrong but capitalism itself is also extremely wasteful like i think even ticton tries to bring it up counter that sort of thing like in terms of like calling the soviet union a non-mode of production like capitalism is extremely wasteful in fact that's like sort of the initial argument one of the initial arguments against capitalism itself no, it's one of the arguments for planning right yeah it's, it's well, the arguments waste, for waste, waste is a relative term you know you have to sort of have something to compare it mm-hmm. against in order to understand how wasteful something is uh yeah you know for ticton basically has against the ussr the capitalist world to compare the wastefulness of the soviet union um if you're comparing say the soviet union to like feudal society like maybe it's more or less wasteful it's hard to say i mean maybe it is wasteful but the industrially um, might be, you know, worth the cost of, you know, because there's always entropy to any system, obviously. It's wasteful, but there's accumulation, which is a point that he makes in contradiction to the what theorists that look at the Soviet Union in light of the uh, Asiatic mode of production in the class yeah. structure. Yeah, essay. It's like there's also. accumulation and there's exploitation, but it never coheres into a, a, a class system yeah. that defined through relations to the means also, of production. Also, I don't necessarily agree per se that it was entirely in vain. Like the the national liberation struggles and anti-imperialist struggles that happened that were due to like the USSR supporting like Vietnam and that sort of thing were ultimately necessary for the development of capitalism in the Eastern world. Like imperialism basically held like those nations back from industrializing and that sort of thing. In yeah, order you would to not have had to... national liberation without the USSR. Yeah, there might actually be prospects for Palestine if the USSR still existed. In sort of a weird way, like it wasn't just like a weird side ditch of like just sort of history or whatever it was something that was weirdly necessary for the development of capitalism and the- yes uh, sure I sure I, I know so i know a professor who's writing an arg- uh, a book in dutch for 1917 and he's arguing that you know the russian the ussr and the russian revolution actually had more to do with decolonization than communism and that it ended up kind of being like this um it ended up becoming a uh a phase of, you know, ending the colonial empires, basically. Ending the global Ain Shan regime is really kind of the breakthrough of the Russian Revolution, is that it allowed for decolonization to happen. Well, when you look at something like the Haitian Revolution, and you're looking at, like, the, you know, the big whites class, and you're thinking, okay, their revolution would be like a bourgeois revolution then you look at the the small whites class and you're like okay maybe they're more like the sans culo 
And then you look at the slave class and you're like, what is their political program like? <laughs> and I think um, the waves of decolonization that were inspired by Leninism and the state productivist kind of like, like, you know, capitalism building models that essentially came out of the Soviet Union did have a historically progressive edge, but they were, you know, completing and expanding the bourgeois revolution, as Lauren Goldner calls it, like the bourgeois revolution with red flags. Um, I mean, that ends up being the sort of dialectical, unintended consequence, you know, cunning of history yeah. thing about the, the communist revolutions is that they yeah. end up building capitalism. <clears throat> Well, they just end up being, you know, bourgeois revolutions, yeah. which are still historically progressive. Without so, bourgeois liberty a lot of the time, but yeah. Yeah, it's like sort of horrific tragedy to think about it. Like, Yeah, it makes honestly, me nauseous. Like, just reading the last, like one of the last letters Trotsky wrote about how he basically believed in communism for most of his adult life. And he basically ended up dying believing in that look at like the old bolsheviks and that sort of thing it's just i mean yeah and it, it was definitely not as magnificent as it should have been you know yeah but the fact that you know decolonization did happen and the great european colonial empires were basically collapsed yeah that was good but yeah it did kind of also lead to this weird thing where nationalism and socialism are intertwined in a way that internationalism is no longer the dominant ideology of socialism. I yeah, like that's that. That's a big problem that the legacy of Stalinism brings us today. And so, the, but at the same time, the legacy of national liberation does show that third world people are human beings and deserve the same rights as everyone else. They had to fight and claim those rights. And, uh, you know, I don't, I can't imagine a historical scenario unless communism happens in 1920, where, you know, the world would continue with huge colonial empires exploiting people that way. Yeah, that, that yeah. was sort of the reason I brought in the Haitian Revolution is because it's, you know, it really is that kind of, it has that kind of like moral force mm -hmm. and that kind of like historical force behind it that, you know, you want to see the rights of man apply to you know the everyone is, the Haitian the revolution had a horrifying like an absolutely horrifying labor system instituted yeah <laughs> but no, it no, was that's, that's right you know it's 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 kind of those weird um contradictions of history where you know something like that ends up being the cutting edge of progress in a certain level well i mean and it it ends up becoming a subaltern genocide at a certain point you know after the capture of Toussaint Louverture there was a historical phase that represented the expansion of the bourgeois revolution to people in the developing world and i mean so to the extent that the that rights have spread great but to do, we also just have to look at the trend towards surplus population and what it actually means for human individuals in the third world today. And I think we should get nauseous again. Well, I think it's, it's the, it's the paradox of free labor. It's like, yeah, right. You're no longer dependent, but you're now free to compete, to survive. And there but was also still, still better to have that freedom though, than to not have that freedom. That I mean, there's, a, there's also horrific processes of expropriation, like a primitive socialist accumulation. I love Preobazhinsky. And the fact that that was done under the red flag, 
that's yeah, stuff, uh, that stuff uh, is grotesque. Like the when whole you idea read, that the peasantry should be destroyed by a red bureaucracy, so and socialism should, could happen was just it should be forcibly proletarianized. Yeah, I mean, that was that was disgusting to Marx and Engels because they realized what a moral outrage it would create, and it would give communism a bad name forever. And it happened. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, yeah, it happened. And people like, you know, Dugan, who really love, you know, what communism ended up signifying in the hearts of people. But he knows that, you know, it's been like ruined, at least for the his generation, like the name of communism. Where, well, like communism with all the humanist and egalitarian and progressive hopes completely gutted out. And you just have this ideology of how much steel can we produce? You know, can we make more TVs than America can? Yeah. And then you well, can't. There's sort of a weird materialist explanation for that sort of, like, basically the fall of the USSR basically, like, ruined Russia for a long period of time. So that sort of weird national Bolshevism, like, red patriotism nonsense is just, like, really common even among like the right wingers like most people are have like a positive view of stalin that that sort of thing well and you see you see so much of like he he doesn't like out explicitly like predict here like how the soviet union is going to collapse and what the political breakup will be like after that but you get a pretty good sense of it that he was kind of on the right track at least in the piece uh, where he talks about, you know, how the intelligentsia had all these skills that were developed by the state, but it wasn't being, they weren't being rewarded for them, even though they had a monopoly on those skills, which is what usually happens, you know, in capitalist societies to like, you know, petty bourgeois intellectuals came to sort of idealize Western capitalism and wanted to basically replace the system. And he talked about how, you know, the skills of the old Soviet elite would ultimately translate to gains for them within capitalism because, you know, they were to a certain extent like administrating society to the extent that it could be administrated and those, those skills would be useful in any system. Um, there was a quote here I just kind of wanted to read just because like it sounded so familiar. It is not a historical accident that the economic system is self-contradictory. It is a reflection of the insecurity of the regime itself. Anyone who has read some of the work of the Soviet underground or has lived there for any period of time has noted the all-pervading discontent present in the USSR. No doubt there are persons who are nationalists, anti-Semites, and those who are naturally docile, but because the production relations are transparent and most individuals in inferior positions are dissatisfied with the system. Elite members are themselves dissatisfied because of the inefficiency of the system and the tight control needed. The only way the system can be maintained is through the effective atomization of the population. This is achieved by the secret police operating through a series of means of social control, conscious or unconscious. The essential point here is that the population is not able to effectively communicate at a level required to deal with essential problems in the economy. The effect is that no one wants to report on palatable information. No one wants to take responsibility. And he goes on into like some of the details of, um, you know, like the yeah. breakdown in communication at the, the chain of production or whatever. But yeah. just culturally, they're also very like, it does sound kind of similar to, the, you know, the sort of like creeping totalitarianism of like the moment that we're in now and the, uh, you know, constant secular oh, stagnation of the economy. You know what I mean? When he talks about atomization, I mean, it, you know, yeah. reminds me of the way that EndNotes uses atomization to, to talk about capitalism. I like that. Um, I think it's just like Bordigas. They picked that up from Bordigas. That's sort of where the leftcom synthesis. But it's um, different in the Soviet Union because in capitalism you have commodity fetishism that kind of spontaneously produces the atomization because you know it, it creates a society based on competing labor markets. Yeah, atomization. 
create atomization so you have a controllable labor force, you need totalitarianism or not, or what's called totalitarianism. Like you need that kind of those, that police state where there's a strong culture of surveillance and stuff. And so as a result, that creates social insecurities and, and a lack of trust. So we're, even if you're a bureaucrat up high in the system who has lots and lots of connections and gets by pretty damn good without having to work at all, there's still this constant fear that someone might turn you in and you might, you know. That's you know, a more egalitarian police state because it affects everybody and not just yeah. people. Yeah. And everybody, in a way, has to be a bureaucrat because, you know, and it's in a way, it's everyone is competing, but it's different because under capitalism, firms compete to produce surplus value, to, you know, the lower prices, to economize on labor time and to undersell each other. The Soviet Union firms are competing just to get, you know, the competing for labor that's available so they can, you know, meet their monthly, you know, uh, their monthly uh, quotas. quotas, which are, you know, basically done in a process called storming, where basically you wait till the last couple of days of the month to really do. <laughs> And so basically most of the month workers and factories just fucking around and then <laughs> your the managers are struggling to find the necessary equipment, you, you know, know I gotta be honest, the this... bartering what's necessary. And then in the last few days, you throw it all together. And it's actually like, just yeah, sounds like a worker. See why people would miss this kind of system because Absolutely. Like, if, if you just want to be a slacker and like, or well, yeah. you're work, you know, and then people would get drunk on the job. People would just not show up to work. I mean, they had a worker's paradise and they blew it. Well, the thing <laughs> is, the thing is, the only way you could resist the system was you couldn't fight for better conditions on the job. You can't hear strike. But you could, you know, go, you know, work drunk and, you know, be really sloppy. Or... No, th this is this yeah. is what this is what the uh, kind of postmodern and like bordigist and like anti-modern or whatever intellectuals and blah blah blah. This oh is what God, they talk. This... this is what they yeah. talk about with capitalism. And I think they have a point when bordigists say the fascist countries lost, but fascism won. When people talk about capitalism as being totalitarian, like the. Contemporary capitalism has literally learned a lot, both from fascism and from Stalinism, about how to I agree. Keep, people, keep people apart. In and labor relations, I think. I think the labor bureaucracy of the U.S. actually like, learned a lot from the USSR. You know? I think, Let me I think, ask like, you in Soviet Russia, if you got injured on the job, did they take you to a place to piss in a cup first to make sure you weren't on drugs before you could get medical treatment? Oh. That's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. there, there are some respects in which the Soviet Union is enviable. Perhaps not many, but some. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I, I... I'm actually, I'm actually kind of awestruck at like how similar like the kinds of passive aggressive resistance that the workers had in the Soviet Union is actually similar to like the slaves in the antebellum South. Like in the antebellum South, they would and actually today, like, break you know, their the way equipment. that workers resist work today, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Because you can't have collective politics, people exactly. are forced to individualistic ways of rebelling. And that's yeah, that, like, you know, you kind of see why antebellum South they the didn't really have a means of organizing. They didn't yeah. really have a means of organizing. 
And I think the same problem exists in modern capitalism is that we're so atomized as a society that we have no way to collectively politically engage with each other because there's just kind of a you know lack of, of fulfilling civil society. And so and what, and what there is what there is instead of civil society is like nerd culture or yeah, and sports. God. The fetishization of like these childhood cultural totems and the like, valorization of sports. Like those are the, that's basically what is like replaced civil society. If and you like, want to rebel, well, hey, drugs are illegal. You can go through drugs and be a hooligan and not uh, be a good capitalist citizen, and you can rebel that way. And yeah. that's you know sticking it to the man. You can go be a yeah. crust punk and live in a train. But it seems you know, like even that scene is dying out. I mean, society yeah, because... that scene's that scene's dying out. Um, what, what you have is like what you have is like hit like rap stuff. And that's all like hyper capitalist, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, or you just, you know, become a drug dealer, even though, because, you know, even if you are exploited as a yeah, low level like, dealer, it's, you know, there's a hope that you can work your way to the top and become uh, the exploiter. There, there's nothing particularly internet. rebellious about becoming a part of like the surplus population anymore, really, or, or like the labor reserve arming, depending on how you want to categorize it, depending on if you go with the end notes analysis. I mean, like, I, yeah, I think that chic is going away, but there was a kind of a period of capitalist culture in the 90s where that was like yeah, positive as this radical and subversive thing to do. I mean, there's there's been a long term like fetishization of like what we might call lumpen. Quote. I'm not saying I don't like some of that stuff. I'm just saying it's no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> we all love it. Like American culture is obsessed with it, and it has been for like a hundred years. It's it's I don't know. It's like old. You can tr- you can trace it back to like the '60s, even with like sort of like the weird well, the commune beef, culture, the beefs, like Burroughs, for example. You can what trace are, it back to probably. What about like gangster films and shit, like and like yeah. people that were like hot on like pro like uh, you know mobs and or even just you know weird anarchist radicals and small affinity groups. <clears throat> you know, you had stuff like that going on. There was all kinds of crazy counterculture in America. There's you know, and even like romantic era like kind of like people that hated modernity and so they're willing to look at all kinds of misfits as sort of striking against yeah, the modern wears and rainbows you know people in that tradition i think and that that is though the kind of tradition that capitalism wants everyone to think is the true rebellion that you do well this brings me to debord and on the one hand it makes me think of his like what is it like concentrated versus diffuse spectacle which is like the difference between you know so the Soviet Union and contemporary capitalism or capitalism in his time <clears throat> it brings me to that like um critique of art like what you're saying Donald and like the sense of wanting a radical break from capitalism in that like dramatic romantic kind of way but also realizing how subsumed and the simulation of that is and then three that dude fucking killed himself like that's you know like there's i don't know some terrible poetry to that to me like he was trying to rehabilitate the spirit of that romantic break and i feel like there's something tragic about that project that forces one to be a cold dead modern scientist and not like a bleeding heart like radical there was a certain line from the surrealist manifesto about firing a gun into a random crowd being like the most, uh, you know, surrealist radical act someone could do. Uh, well, the situation well, is sort of smarter than that. Like, yeah, there's this 
Yeah, simple as surreal as that consists of dashing into the street, pistol in hand, and firing blindly as fast as you can pull the trigger into the crowd. Like, you know, that goes all the way back to Breton, you know, the surrealist, and the situationists are in that tradition, too. The situationists like, aren't about firing into a random crowd, though. Yeah, but you, it's, yeah. It is, there is this desire for this romantic break with capitalist modernity, whether it's through, you know, exploring the nooks and crannies of the city that no respectable person would go into. It's a whole psycho geography. Well, that, yeah, that was just their intellectualizing, like getting drunk and wandering around. But like, well, what DeBoer did was he basically kind of diagnosed the terminal endpoint of the avant-garde. That's what he did. Like, he basically pointed out that you know any sort of remnant of rebelliousness that exist that existed within art in the first half of the 20th century that's evaporated, that's gone, shows over, folks. And that's that's why they that's why this situation international didn't last, and that's why they he you know made art making like that wasn't really his priority after may 68 like he basically recognized that like you really can't have avant-garde art anymore because all art has been completely subsumed subsumed under capitalism you know that's what the board's contribution is and i think the board is right and that there was basically a limit point and how much this kind of avant-garde transgressive art actually kind of went against uh feudal I mean, capitalistic ideals. I think really like actually the Marquis de Sade his had tradition of transgression kind of makes sense. Like kind of goes back to that because he was, you know, transgressing the moral authority of the church through these kind of lurid, you know, sexual fantasies. And so I think that from there, from the whole, you know, beginning of modernity, there's this desire to kind of break with it. And it escalates. You get, you know, it goes up through, uh, you know, the Dadaists and then Surrealists and the Letterists. And yeah, like the situation was kind of like the last line on that train, the last stop on that train, basically, where they pretty much did everything you could possibly do to do anti-art or to try to be disruptive, sort of, yeah, being becoming the Unabomber or something, you know, like that, like that, that, that was it. Um, yeah, the Unabomber yeah. is, you know, the kind of the ultimate. <laughs> Andre Breton's. Uh... No, the, the Unabomber has more in common. The, those sound like industrial machine guns. The, the Unabomber has more in common with like the old Russian nihilists than the situation is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this conversation has taken a crazy turn, but it's still related to the topic. <laughs> Because we're talking God about damn. the atomization and individual. Well, our minds just got blown by Tickton, okay? And now Tickton we're. Tickton is a mind blowing author, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, now he's made a serious contribution okay, to so communist theory. Are we going to try to get Tickton on the show? Yeah, I tried, but I couldn't find a good email address, and so I just gave uh-huh. up. Okay. Yo, what about Donald Filzer? I heard good things about him. Um. Yeah, Donald Filzer is a. Um... I think he's a student of TikTok. I don't know if he literally is or, but in methodology, he definitely is. And uh, he does um, historical works on the Soviet Union using TikTok's methodology. And if you want, to, if you want a really insane read on Stalinist Russia, read um, Soviet workers and Stalinist industrialization. I think that's the book to get. If you really, it's, it's. I think it's kind of hard to get a hold of. If you can get it at a library, that's good. So I got a hold of it. It really goes in depth in how the labor relations were formed in the Soviet Union during the Stalin years and how basically, you know, the state took this huge mass of peasantry and basically whipped it into what 
attempted to make into a pliable labor force and just the whole um, system of how it emerged politically and, and economically. If you really want to see it in motion, Donald Filzer, who's a student of Hickton, is, is a place to go. And he also writes um, on later period, like he writes about the Khrushchev period. He writes about, you know, the, the Gorbachev period. So he also looks at, you know, how market reforms what happened when they actually tried to implement market reforms? And the answer is they really work so well. That's it for this week. I thought today's conversation was a bit longer, and that's why I cut it up into two parts. And it was longer, but we already released a bunch of it as the M&M show. So that's why today's episode is about a half an hour. Usually when you see things chopped up into part one, part two... That's my doing. Jake is more of a Stakhanovite. And so, thanks for hanging in there, audience. Next week, we're going to be Googling Murray Bookchin. And coming up, we have Amadeo Bordiga and what's his name? Sorel. Was it George Sorel? Something French, I'm sure. You know, like us on Facebook or some shit. I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably already did that. But try to convince your friends to listen to us, even though we do a lot of inside baseball on here. If you have any suggestions or just general comments, please heckle us on the internet. On SoundCloud, Facebook. Drop us a line at swampsidechats at gmail.com. I'm kind of new to Twitter. You can welcome me to Twitter at... Estro Junkie, E-S-T-R-O. And as a further apology slash synthesis of the topics we've been covering, I took the nostalgic national Bolshevik song Vsyo Idiot Poplanu by Grajdanska Oborona. And I twisted it into some kind of Atlantean synth-pop instrumental track. The original Russian lyrics are a pretty morose tale about the fall of the Soviet Union and how shitty everything is, with the refrain going, and everything is going according to plan. So, just while you're listening to these synthesizers, imagine to yourself, everything is going according to plan. Good night.